The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Hello everyone and welcome to the Echo Chamber. This is Maya Pavinska-Sims, EMEA editor at The Homes Report and I'm in a rather damp London today with Richard Shotton, author of The Choice Factory. So this book has been described by Ogilvy's Rory Sutherland as a Haynes manual for understanding consumer behaviour um, and it was published earlier this year outlining 25 behavioural biases that influence what we as consumers buy and why we do or don't pay attention to brand messages. So loads of pertinent stuff in there for the PR and comms world. Richard, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Hi, nice to meet you. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us a bit about your background, uh, when you became interested in behavioural economics and how how the book came about. So my background is uh, as a media planner. I started off as a media planner before moving into, into research. And... I first became interested in behavioural science actually in a very, very specific moment. I think with most things in life, you gradually drift into them. But there was a specific moment I first realised how useful this topic was. And it was stuck in the back of a cab on the way back from what had frankly been a car crash client meeting. Oh, gosh. Uh, And we'd we'd been with the NHS. We'd been trying to encourage people to uh, give blood. And unfortunately, we were a long way off our targets. And as I went back to the agency, I luckily read about the story of Kitty Genovese. So it's quite a famous story in social psychology, but she was a bar worker in New York. Mm. And in 1964, 13th of March, early hours of the morning, she's coming home, parks a car about 100 yards from her house. And then unfortunately, uh, on the walk to her front door, she's spotted by a man called Winston Mosley. Mm. And Mosley stalks her and stabs her. And then within a few days, this is front page news on the uh, front page of the New, New York Times. And the, you know, might, might not sound surprising that such a brutal murder made the front pages. But in 1964, there were 636 other murders. So it's quite rare that mm. a murder would make the front page news. They were unfortunately commonplace in that, at that time in New York. But why this had made the front pages was that supposedly it was witnessed by 37 people. Right. And none of them did anything to intervene. So they didn't go down and help, they didn't call the police. And whilst the press uh, were scandalised by this, thinking that you know, it must be a sign of New York's moral decay, mm. that how could a defenceless person be attacked despite there being so many witnesses? Two psychologists heard this story and they thought the Times had come to completely the wrong conclusion. And then it wasn't that no one helped despite there being so many witnesses, it was that no one helped because there were so many witnesses. Right, okay. Uh, so these two psychologists, uh, Bib Latine and John Darley, uh, thought that there was a diffusion of responsibility amongst the crowd. So everyone thought someone else was going to call the police. Yeah, ex- right? exactly. Yeah. And, the, the, you know, and by the fact that no one else was, they, mm. or no one else was helping, they thought, you know, they, they judged the situation, didn't need any help. Now, rather than just argue this from first principles or from, from logic alone... The, the psychologists set up a number of uh, experiments. So they would stage an emergency. Uh, for example, one of their colleagues would pretend to have an epileptic fit. And they would set up these emergencies so that either one person saw it or a group of people. And they found that people were twice as likely to come to another person's aid, up to twice as likely, if they were on their own compared to being in a group. Wow. So they term this the, mm. the, the, the bystander effect. Simple idea that the more people you ask for help, 
the less likely any one individual is to help it. So going back to 2004, when I first read this, I thought, you know, bloody hell, this is exactly the problem we face in the blood service. Yeah. We're going out and ask everyone to donate blood. And just as Latina and Dali suggest, most people are ignoring us. Mm. So having read that, I thought, well, this is completely applicable to what we're doing. Went and spoke to the creative agency in a lovely uh, strategist down there called Charlie Snow and said, well, why don't we try and uh, apply this? Why don't we try and get around the bystander effect? Stop saying blood stocks are low in England, please donate. Start tailing the message to not quite individuals, but to, to, to locations. So okay. Came, blood stocks alone in Birmingham, please donate. Blood stocks alone in Brentwood, please donate. Blood stocks alone in Basildon, please donate. And it made a difference? It made a difference, yeah. Uh, so 14 years later, I think it was about 15, uh, the number's a bit fuzzy now, but it was about 15% improvement in the, in the COSPA response. Wow. That's so quite an uptick, isn't it? Quite, quite an uptick mm. from such a... Now, that's by no means a, a revolutionary tactic, mm. although I think things like IP targeting were a little bit more uh, uh, novel yeah. in 2004. Um, but... It's a very simple approach. What fascinated me was up till then, I thought behavioural science or, or social psychology were irrelevant to advertising. I just thought this was some academic subject, mm. but now saw that it had really practical value to advertising. And and where did you go from it after then? I mean, the book's got a, an mm. awful lot of academic examples in it from research, which you've summarised beautifully in little kind of nuggets. But you've, you've obviously read widely around this subject now. Yes. So although it was the bystander effect where I started, you know, that is by no means the only experiment or insight uh, in psychology. There are literally hundreds of mm. biases, the hundreds of little quirks of human nature that have been identified by psychologists. So I've spent the last 14 years learning about those, running my own experiments and trying to show brands and marketers and, and business people in general that this is an immensely practical mm. and relevant topic. And you've boiled it down to 25 little behavioural yeah. uh, biases or ticks. Um, how did you come up with the, the 25 that you think are most relevant to this industry? Yeah, so I th- uh, it, it was essentially, as you say, it was the relevance point. So over this period, it was biases that I'd seen or found a use for, mm. for brands. Um, what I really wanted to do was avoid talking about uh, biases in an abstract sense. Because I think there's been quite a lot of work done on that already. Yeah. For every bias I identified, I wanted to show that there was a very practical application to pricing or PR or media or, or, or marketing in general. Mm. And, and it, it's I mean, it's a relatively short book. It's really easy to read, really enjoyable. It's packed with great anecdotes, which uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, there's a lot in there that at first glance looks like it's most relevant to advertising, creatives, planners mm. um, uh, and marketers. Why would you say the book was relevant for comms and PR professionals yeah. as well? Um, I, I definitely think it's relevant to comms and PR professionals. I think uh, if you are trying to persuade, if you, you know, if you're the end person trying to persuade is a person, then the study of human nature and why people make the decisions they do is is, is phenomenally relevant. Mm. Um, in terms of some of the biases that are most relevant, I think things like the the pratfall effect mm. would have great relevance to PR people. Tell us about that. Uh, so, so that is um, it's from a wonderful study back in 1966 by Elliot Aronson, and it's essentially the idea that people or products who exhibit a flaw become more appealing. So he's um, he's an original study. He recruited a colleague of his to take part in a quiz. Mm. He gave his colleague all the answers. So the colleague does amazingly well, gets 92% of the questions right, wins the quiz by miles. 
Um, but then as he is standing up at the end of the quiz, as the quiz comes to the end, he makes what an American would call an Americanism, a pratfall, a small blunder. Right. Uh, he spills a cup of coffee down himself. So Aronson has recorded all of this, uh, and then he takes that recording, he plays it to people, and he either plays the entire incident... Including the spill. Yeah, spill and great performance, mm. or just the great performance. And then he goes and asks people, how appealing do you find the contestant? And people find the contestant significantly more appealing, statistically significantly more appealing, if they have heard the mistake as well as the um, uh, great performance. And why is that? Is it just about the, him, him appearing more human? So I think on, on a personal level, uh, Aronson argued it was a kind of a humanising factor. What's interesting is I think it also works for, for brands as well, and I think there are additional reasons why it's so effective for brands. Okay, tell us um, about those. So, so you know, if you, when I say it works for brands, if you think about some of the most successful ad campaigns of all time, um, Stella, reassuring expensive admits it's expensive VW went out and said it was ugly um, Listerine the taste changed twice a day admitted it was uh, uh, horrible tasting a lot, why I think those kind of uh, approaches are really successful is they understand the position that the listener is coming from they right. understand that the listener or the audience doesn't trust an advertiser they're suspicious of the claims they think they're either partial at best or maybe lies at worst and therefore by admitting a weakness you've mm. given a tangible demonstration of your honesty and therefore all your other claims become that much more believable. It's, it seems really uh, kind of common sense really doesn't it but I'm my guessing that most people in the in the business we're in don't actually know that much about all this you know kind of the the wealth of stuff they can learn from behavioral yeah. science do you think that there's a there's a i mean you've obviously summarized a lot of it but yeah. do you think it's do you think it's a discipline that, that more marketers and pr um people should get more of a handle on uh, so absolutely I mean, yeah, two really interesting bits of that question this first is is it common sense mm. and i th- the interesting thing with that pratfall effect is there's a phenomenal amount of evidence for it. So there's the Aronson evidence, there's lots of case study evidence, there's more recent evidence at Northwestern University that works in the real world. So they've shown, for example, that um, reviews online, uh, the better the review gets, it's like the better the score is out of five or ten, yeah. the more likely people are to purchase that product until you reach a tipping point where if the review gets any better likely to purchase declines. Wow. So okay. they argue that perfection is too good to be true. So, so it's, it's, it's a bias, it's an insight that's been found again and again and again. Yet, if you flip it, and rather than just list off some of the great campaigns that have used it, and instead look at like an, uh, a selection of newspapers, which, which I've done, you find that less than 1% of uh, advertisers use it. You know, it's, it's, it's the tiniest of amounts. Mm. So whilst once we're aware of it, it might be explicable, and there's lots of evidence for it, it's still being massively underused by advertisers. Right. So I wouldn't want people to think, oh, this stuff is common sense, everyone's doing it, therefore I have no opportunity. Mm-hmm. There is still plenty of competitive advantage people can get from, from applying these biases. And there's, a, there's an awful lot of stuff in here that's kind of counterintuitive as mm. well. It's like it's the opposite of what we believe to be true. Yeah. Yeah. And actually it's been proven again and again. Yes. As, I mean, you've got examples yeah. throughout the book. Give an example of, of something that surprised you when you first found yeah. out about it. Well, there are, uh, you know, 
practical effect was certainly that. But I'll, I'll do another as well. But the practical effect was that. I think most advertisers, they go out or most PR claims are just telling people how amazing they are. Mm. Fascinatingly, this shows you that's actually a counterproductive approach. Um, one of the other bits that I thought was fascinating, because at first it just sounds like hokum, was there is an Adam Alter study. Uh, he's, a, he's a psychologist at um, NYU. And what he found was this idea called nine enders. Right, OK. So it's the idea that people are particularly likely to make massive life decisions when their age ends in nine. Right, So okay. he calls them nine enders. You know, they're aged 29, 39, 49. And it sounds like rubbish at first because how he first gives evidence is a bit shaky. He goes out, use, uses a giant global study and uh, it's along the lines of, you know, have you made a massive life decision in the last 12 months? People are much more likely to agree if their age ends in nine. Now, that's a bit shaky because one of the core findings of social psychology is what people say motivates them yeah. is very different from what it actually does. Yes. But then what he does, and I think this is the best, um, this is the hallmark of the best um, academics and best psychologists, is he then finds a amazing range of different data sources that, that kind of prove his point. So he looks at something called Athlinks, uh, which is a, um, an athletic website, okay. and finds that people are significantly more likely to do their first marathon. I think it's 48% more likely when their age ends in nine. 48%, 48% more likely. Wow. Then he looks at uh, a little bit more depressing data, Ashley Madison data. So this is the affairs website. Yes. Cheery slogan, life is what happens <laughs> So that, uh, And then again, nine enders, uh, I think 18, 19% more likely wow. to register when their uh, okay. age ends in nine. Even most seriously of all, uh, US suicide data, there's a statistically significant, albeit small, uplift in suicides when someone's age ends in nine. Gosh. So he doesn't just take... Um, what people say at face value, mm. he finds all these other different data sources and shows that uh, it's a genuine, valid finding. And then once advertisers know that or businesses know that, you know, if you are trying to sell a sports car or a diet brand or long haul holidays, uh, targeting people when their age ends in nine is a is a brilliant opportunity. And best of all, it's probably one that your competitors don't know about. So you've got an opportunity to, to steal a march on them. The crisis of the nine enders. Yes. Yeah. We've, all, we've all been there. Yeah, yeah. I've been through yeah. what, about one more than I would like to yeah. be through thus far. Yeah. Um, let's, talk, um, let's talk a little bit more about some of the biases. Let's start at the beginning with bias number one, the fundamental mm. attribution error. Um, outline this for me and why target okay. contexts are as important as target audiences, which hadn't occurred to me before. Okay. So it, the fundamental attribution error is the idea that when we're explaining behaviour, we put too much emphasis on someone's character and not enough on the situation. Right. And the, the most famous uh, experiment around this area was one by uh, John Darley and, uh, and Batson. And... I think this shows its age a bit. It was 1973, so they were working with 40-odd trainee priests. And like all psychology experiments, they had invented a cover story, so they never tell people why they're taking part in this experiment. And they told them that it was about they wanted to watch them give a presentation, mm. or sorry, a sermon. They wanted to watch them give a sermon. And they briefed them in a hall, and then they were going to send them on their way, five-minute walk to the local church. As they are leaving, and this is the crux of the experiment, they either say, oh, gosh, you're a little bit late, you better hurry, mm -hmm. or, okay, you've got loads of time, you know, but you know, you'll probably get there a bit early, but don't worry about it, might as well head off now. Then when they're walking to the church, 
the psychologists have made sure there's a, one of their colleagues is pretending to be ill, on, on, on you know, leaning down against the wall, okay. looking uh, you know, pale and sickly and uh, troubled. And the real part of the experiment was how many of these trainee priests would stop and help. And what's interesting is when they're in a rush, 10% stopped. When they were told they had plenty of time, 63% stopped. Now, that's the importance of the situation. The other part of this insight is people repeatedly and regularly underestimate that situational importance. So if you go and ask people how much of an effect do you think the rush would have, mm. they, they think it's tiny. What people think would have an effect is the personality, you know, the, the, the kind of altruism of the yeah. audience. But they're all priests, so that's quite a good, you know, uh, sample because you're assuming they're all altruistic yeah, and, 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 and they would all be good Yes, yeah. well, what, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, in fact, the, uh, the, the uh, just for kind of... Uh, Irony. I think that I think the uh, sermon they were meant to be talking about was the Good Samaritan as perfect. well. It's perfect. <laughs> just, bit of a, just, just to rub it in. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. And and and, and darling, Bats also asked those people. I think they had to do a kind of uh, a personality questionnaire, mm. and there were various different reasons they could give for going into the priesthood. Some of which was about the, the glory of God. Others was to help other people. Mm. Now, the helping other people was the part they were interested in, and whether or not they agree with that statement strongly or not at all. It had a minimal effect on whether they stopped. So how does that, um, what can brands who, who are trying to reach consumers with their messages yeah. learn from that well, example? Well, the, 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 the key thing is marketers and brands spend an inordinate amount of time talking about, OK, who's the ideal mm. target audience? What social psychology would suggest is, yes, that's important to a degree, mm. but actually you should give... Be far more broader in your targeting and think more about the target mm. context. So, so it's not just about Karen from Staines and no, two kids. No, it's, it's about what, what Karen's doing yes, on, in her day. Has Karen just got paid? If he's just got paid, she'll spend be spending far more on discretionary items than if she hasn't. Uh, is she in a good mood? If she's in a good mood, there's evidence from Fred Bronner that she's more likely to notice that than if she's in a bad mood. You know, the literal interpretation from the Dahlia and Batson experiment would be, is she in a rush? Mm. If she is... She's unlikely to notice. Uh, so not not even notice. It's not a question of rejecting a, a brand message in whichever format it comes. It's actually literally just not penetrating. Yes. Um, so I th- oh, now this is going back. So I think on the when Dali and Batson went and questioned the priest at the end, um, I, I think there was an element of even if they had physically seen the person, they hadn't even kind of gone far enough yeah. to think. There wasn't like a, a literal debate of should they, yeah. don't So there was no engagement yeah. with, yeah. with that yeah. at all. Because okay. they were they, wow. they kind of, I've forgotten the guy's name, but I think they called it a narrowing of the cognitive map. Okay. They become kind of, there was tunnel vision. Almost. So even if you've got your demographics yeah. completely spot mm. on, you've got your human insights completely spot on, all based on data, you yeah. could just literally be reaching that perfect uh, audience in at completely the wrong time. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Okay, that's but, really interesting. And, and, and there's another element of this which becomes... Even if there was no improvement in the performance of reaching someone at that stage, just doing something different from your competitors has a big, big value in a world where media buying has become increasingly auction-driven. If you go and target ABC1s or 1634s like everyone else, Mm. well, you're in a very busy, very uh, competitive auction. What you really want to be doing is targeting a C2 person when they've just got paid Mm. or a... 
45-year-old who's just undergone a life event and therefore their habits have become destabilised. Tell us about that, the stuff about life events oh, yeah, yeah, completely yes. changing the way people see brands and the world around yeah. them. Um, so this, th- th- there's an idea that we buy uh, an awful lot of our behaviour is habitually driven. Yeah. Which makes sense. You've got so we, many. We to... just do the same things. Yeah, yeah. We buy the same stuff. We do the same things. Yeah, every it's, day, it's, right? it's a way of navigating a world of huge choice. Mm. Just buying the same things last time is an easy way to not bother making a decision, really. Um, a colleague and I, uh, Laura Weston, put a very simple study together to try and understand when people, when people's habits were at their weakest, when they were, when they were most open to trying new things. And all we did was a two-question survey. Or, so the first question is, uh, have you undergone any of these life events in the last six or 12 months? And when by life event, I mean things like, um, have you been married, divorced, retired, moved house, started a new job, a few others. Then we asked them a few filler questions just to throw them off the scent. And then the final question was, and we did a few different variations, but it was things like, uh, tick the categories where you have tried a new brand, got a new favourite, mm-hmm. or, um, um, yeah, or, or, or started buying one more regularly. And for every life event, you see people up between two and three times more likely to have tried a new brand or got a new favourite in that six, 12-month window after, um, after there's been a life event compared to the kind of population. So something whole. huge happening just throws all your habits up in the air. Yes, yes. I mean, it's, Buying it's, habits yeah. included. There's, there's probably two, two reasons. One, I think, exactly as you put it, if someone's environment becomes destabilised, um, then they've at least become open to... Mm. They've got to at least you know, consider what they're doing and therefore they're open to change. I mean, the second area is... A, is a, there's another secondary fascinating explanation, which is I think most people, frankly, don't give two hoots about brands. They have a kind of um, a slight warmth to them. This idea of loyalty and love is massively overblown. So let's take an example of moving house and coffee shops. Mm. If you were a... Um, a Cafe Nero buyer. You move house and now Cafe Nero is a little bit um, awkward. It's, it's like a mile's walk. Very few people are going to bother trudging through the rain to get mm. to Cafe Nero. Suddenly you're in the market and the Pret and the Starbucks are only a couple hundred yards away. You're now in the market and, the, and you're going to be choosing between one of those two brands. So that's the time when advertising can actually can sway you more. Yeah, more just kind of get in there mm. quickly. Um, tell me a bit about, uh, I'm going to skip forward to bias number 12, confirmation bias. Um, now, I thought this was an interesting theory. Mm. This is who, who to target, who to try and sell to effectively. Um, and the theory here is the, is the, the triage approach where marketers should focus mm. on the, the, those consumers where comms is likely to have an effect rather than those who already know they love or loathe the brand. Yes. Um, my question there is because we talk a lot in, in PR and comms about advocates, about influencers, about word of mouth. Mm. Um, leveraging those who are already fans uh, is uh, is that an invalid tactic, or is it? Are you going to have more business impact by yeah. always going for the ones who don't so, know yet? Yes. So I wouldn't argue it's an invalid tactic, but I wonder if it's one we might exaggerate the effect of. Right. Okay. In the bad news for everyone with well, influencer yeah. relations. Uh, you know, well, this is you know, now. Now uh, I might be moving to kind of speculation slightly, but it's getting to this idea of there. Of course, there are some fans of brands, but I mean, not that many. Yeah. If we're honest, the role of a brand in most people's life is far 
less meaningful. Mm. So the scale is always going to be on the side of moving people who have a slight warmth to buying a little bit more regularly or are neutral towards a brand being mm. slightly positive. Um, uh, I, I do think it's fascinating, and I wonder if this comes into ideas of sometimes the decisions we make are more about our own, for our own personal benefit than the brand it, itself. Right. And I wonder if we sometimes subscribe to this idea or overemphasise the importance of fans because it makes us feel more powerful mm. and more uh, influential rather than the less dramatic approach of targeting okay. the mildly interested. So that kind of uh, the, the holy grail of real emotional engagement with the brand is, is probably not all it's yeah. cracked up to. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there are... Uh, you know, there's a lot of work done by Binan Field about the importance of emotion in advertising. And I wouldn't certainly disagree with that. Mm. I think one of the findings from paper science is that people do not weigh up all the logic and the reasons uh, and the rationality for, for, for buying a brand. I mean, people aren't standing at the deodorant counter for hours. <laughs> Re- weighing, reading weighing the back the, of the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Weighing up the carbon footprint and the, the, the cost per spray. Yeah. A, a warm feeling towards a brand will have mm. it, it is hugely valuable. It's just when we go from warm feeling, positive disposition, you know, and and and, and positive associations to love marks and mm. loyalty and fandom. That's I think it's it's the leap that's the problem. Yeah. The the the, the exaggeration, not trying to deny the role and, of and just not attainable for most yes. brands yeah. in the market, really. Yeah. Um, which are just part of our day to day lives rather than. Hmm. necessarily completely kind of aspirational yeah. don't have to don't yes. have to be in love with the brand you heard it here first um uh bias 14 is another interesting Ooh, yes. one wishful seeing <laughs> yeah. which covers a topic very close to the hearts of the yeah. pr industry at the moment brand purpose and i don't think i've had a conversation in the last three months yeah. that hasn't included the words brand purpose um somewhat controversially you uh, essentially debunk the business benefits of brand purpose in this chapter or the, or the research that uh, that led to everybody jumping on the brand purpose bandwagon talk us through the reasoning yeah there. absolutely so um because oh, oh, Often people justify brand purpose by case studies. They'll look at Patagonia or... Um, oh, that comes up a lot. There's always a Patagonia slide at a conference. Yes, yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know enough about Patagonia, but I'm sure, you know, phenomenal campaigns and that may well have, have a brand purpose and, and, and done very well out of it. But there are, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of brands in the world. So picking the odd case study doesn't really prove or disprove mm. something. So I think if you're going to argue the toss over brand purpose, you need to have a look at some broader research. And the most quoted broader research that tries to draw general themes is Stengel's research in the book Grow. Yeah. So this is the one that I think Martin Sorrell said was um, utterly convincing. Yeah. Uh, Tom Peter said it was a landmark. Gets waved around a lot. Gets, gets waved around a lot. And then the, the main chart that I certainly see again and again in presentations is the Stengel 50. So he, he, get, he works with Moore Brown, takes the top 50 brands in their 50,000 strong database and shows that they grow at 383% over that period, their share price. Whereas in comparison, the uh, Standard & Poor Index dropped by 7%. Right. And then what, what Stenger had already done was look at those top 50 brands and he had supposedly found a, a link between the brands, which was brand purpose. So that chart is often used as the argument that if you have a brand purpose, a kind of higher order ideal, uh, often interpreted as in a kind of uh, an ethical communications and such, mm. then your stock market will grow stratospherically. 
I've I looked into all the the footnotes that he provides, and to, and to be absolutely fair to him, and I probably may not say this enough, he's very good in that actually he puts his working and his methodology out openly. Most mm. people don't do that, so you know, a lot of respect for him in that in that area. But by doing it, you could see all the issues with this study as well, from the accuracy of the data, um, a lot of the brands that he uses um, don't actually have stock market prices. Mm. So about a third of the brands he looks at are just smaller entities within large holding companies. Right, okay. So, for example, he says, Innocent Smoothies has a brand ideal. We know it works because of the Coca-Cola stock market price in moving upwards. The problem with that is what he's claiming and the metrics he's using are, are, are proving different things. So innocence less than or about a percent of Coca-Cola's turnover mm. can't possibly be responsible for this huge organisation's um, turnover increase and, and stock market performance. So about a third of the data is unfortunately you know, polluted, mm. so it should, should stop us uh, using it. And it, it is an even bigger problem. There's, there's, a, there's a logical problem behind it, which is Stengel takes the top 50 brands out of Mill Brown's 50,000. So this is the, the cream of the cream in terms of brands, the top 0.1%. And then says this group of brands have had a great stock market performance. Well, the, well, the problem with that is what he's essentially saying is brands that do amazingly well on Mill Brown's loyalty and bonding scores have performed well previously. They've got a good stock market price. Yeah. And that's kind of circular logic. It's, 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 it's very circular. It's basically logic. saying, yeah, very successful brands have had a good yeah. stock market Successful brands are successful. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So why why is everyone, like, so passionate about brand purpose at the moment? Is it just to make well, our, our slip better I, as yeah, an industry? I, I, I think so. There are other, uh, you know, we have more time to go, go to some of the other, other problems with the, the data, but I think those, you know, two are illustrative. Um, I, th- I think there's, there's probably two areas. There's one which is this idea, I call it wishful seeing, mm. that we see what we want to see. And I think a slight shame of marketing and selling has crept into the industry that, from my point of view, it should be enough. You know, we're doing a great job if you make people um, believe a a soft drink tastes that much nicer. You're doing a great job if you create an amazing brand that gives people confidence when they walk into a room. Those those are noble and decent ideals, but I think there's crept into marketing recently a bit of a shame about selling and because of that we've looked to more grandiose justifications for right. our for our job and I think that is what brand purpose So brands that fills. make a difference in the world make us feel like we're making a difference in the world yeah. as marketers yeah. and you can go to a, mm. you can have a, a really interesting argument yeah, actually dinner party and feel proud because you can go and say you're saving I'm the world I'm making a difference I'm saving mm. the yes. planet yeah, um, not just selling stuff. Yes. That's really that's really interesting, controversial. But the, the, the other, the second bit on that is, um, and I think this might be typical of more uh, uh, studies, is I do worry that one of the changes in the last 10, 15 years, we've all got access to a lot more data. Mm. You know, I don't think anyone would dispute that. But the d- problem with having access to more data is we have a fixed amount of hours in the day so by definition, the amount of time we're spending analysing each bit of data decreases. So I wonder if more and more often we accept the headline finding of reports and research, mm. even if the methodology and the data and the mechanics behind it don't um, support it, because people feel they're too busy to go and um, you know 
pour through the through the yeah. detail. Which brings us back to the point that it's important to get much more of a handle on behavioural science uh, and not just yes. accept the headlines. Yes. Um, you talked about, and you referred to this a couple of times earlier, you you haven't just pulled together existing academic research, you've also conducted experiments yep. of your own uh, that you refer to throughout the book. What was your, your favourite or most surprising experiment? Um, I, I think I think I think my favourite um, was probably we were working with a, a clothes brand, uh, New Look, and they were going to launch a, 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 or start to promote their menswear range. Mm. And they had a very small budget for this, and we had a feeling that you know the, the, the kind of initial approach we were just going to announce that we have uh, men's clothes wasn't the right one. So wanted to try and. Um, test whether there was a better way of doing it if there were, if there were problems with just an announcement approach. And they're just a high street women's wear brand yeah, yeah, up yes, until this yes, point. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, so when I spoke to the planners and raised some of my uh, concerns, this was internally in the agency, and they were adamant that we haven't got any budget, you know, clients are not going to pay for you to come and tell them something they don't want to hear. So I couldn't do any you know, large-scale research. So, so what I did instead was recruit you know, half a dozen, dozen people from around the agency uh, took two photos of them, one holding a you know plastic shopping bag emblazoned with the new look logo, uh, and we uh, and then the other exactly the same person, exactly the same pose, mm. but holding a top man bag. Were they all were they all guys? All, all yeah, blokes, all yeah. blokes. So then we put those photos onto a dating site called Badoo, or what was had, had I think had been called Hot or Not. And the interesting thing about that website was people would put their photos up and. Everyone else would then rate how good looking they were. So we put all these photos up, and then two weeks later, I went back and looked at the results. And when men were holding a new look bag, they were seen as 20, 20 to twenty five percent less sexy than when they were holding a, a top man bag. Wow! So the exact same guy, exact, exact same, same guy, pose. same pose, just different bag. Ouch! Ouch! Yeah. Yes, exactly. So the argument again to the kind of the uh, team was: Look, um, this is not just an announcement job you know mm. there's a far bigger task um you need not just to tell people you have men's clothes mm. because there's a slightly problematic image you need to persuade people that it doesn't matter shopping about at a company that once was a female only shop or just get people complete thinking of you as a, a unisex shop mm. but a bigger task with a, a, a far bigger budget was that's required. really interesting did they take that on the chin i don't do they even sell menswear now Oh yeah, they still sell menswear. Yeah, so um, I can't remember if, if it's the budget been a while went up since I've been into New York. Yeah, yeah. yes, um, that's really interesting. So mm. tell me, tell me one thing you'd like our listeners, who are PR and comms people globally, to take away from the book. Assuming that you must all go out and buy it, obviously, yes. that's definitely the thing. Um, what, what's one thing you'd like them to take away from this? So the um, well, I think we've touched on one, which is the big bit of. Don't be shy of admitting a, f- a flaw. Yeah, I think we default to trying to claim we're perfect. Th- th- that is, I think, a very um, powerful tactic. The other, uh, which might be of interest, is this idea called the, the peak end rule. So if you're ever responsible for a, a kind of customer experience, there's, I- there's an argument and a lot of experiments behind it from Kahneman and Radelmeyer that when people think back to the experience you've created, mm. they cannot remember everything. You know, if you try to remember all, um, all of our past would be kind of, uh, would have a deluge of information, just overwhelm us. And instead, people put disproportionate influence on the peak moment of that experience 
and the final moment of that experience. Right. So peak being? Peak being uh, the most emotionally powerful okay. moment, either the best or the worst. So suddenly if you're creating a customer experience, you shouldn't just be thinking about doing everything a little bit better. You should be thinking about one moment of excellence and ideally mm. what happens at the very end of that experience. You know, whether it's as someone leaves a store or your stand or, 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 or whatever, you know, that gets off a plane. It's, it's the final moment of the experience that is disproportionately important. Yeah, and that lingers. That's really yes, interesting. Yes. So what, what's next for you? You spent 14 years summing up <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. behavioural yeah. psychology and how it applies to marketing. So next book's out uh, in 2032. Yeah. <laughs> well, are you working on something else? I am. Moment? So uh, two big things. Uh, I'm working on a second book. Yeah. Uh, that has slightly slowed down because it's taking an awful long time to, to promote the first one but I'm, I'm working on a second book which be another uh, collection of biases and also maybe a framework for applying them okay so i think if you have too many mm. if you're aware of too many biases they can become a bit uh, confusing so therefore we're trying to develop a framework to help people apply them and the second bit what i've done is also set up a company called astro 10 which helps uh, brands apply some of these findings. Okay, cool. Well, I will look forward mm, to reading the excellent. next one in another 14 yeah, years. Yeah. Um, no, um, 2020, I think. 2020, yeah. okay. Uh, Rich, thank you so much for joining Fantastic. us in the Thanks Echo Chamber today. Cheers. Cheers. You've been listening to the Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group. Putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.